I'd like you to take your Bible now and turn to John chapter 5. John chapter 5 is where we are in our Bible study. And so you may already be there knowing that's where we were headed. So let's look at John chapter 5. We're going to read some verses of Scripture, and then I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask God's blessing on this Bible study. John chapter 5. Let's begin reading in verse 18, as really that builds the foundation and gives us the context for the verses we're going to be looking at this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 23, but the section goes all the way down through verse 29. So we're going to read verse 18 through verse 29 so we can get the context and understand what's happening here. John chapter 5, look with me in your scriptures. We'll begin reading in verse 18. The gospel writer records, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, Jesus, because not only was he breaking their version of the Sabbath, but he was, call, he was even calling God his own father. And then the last phrase is the context that we need here, making himself equal with God. And what Jesus is going to do in verse 19 is expound on that concept. Verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life... And those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Let's pray. Our God, as we look into this passage of scripture this morning, would you give us grace that we may have eyes to see your word, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. May you help us understand the importance of seeing the Son as equal to the Father and thus worshiping him in that mindset. So we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Verses 19 all the way down through the end of the chapter, verse 47, is a complicated monologue. That means one person speaking of Jesus unfolding for us two major truths. The first truth are three, really three major sections, three major reasons why Jesus is equal to the Father. The second truth that he gives is verses 30 through 47, and that is he ties the Old Testament to himself. These are all of the witnesses that say that I'm equal to the Father. 
When we look at the rest of chapter 5, beginning in verse 19, we are looking at truths of Jesus speaking about his relation and relationship to the Father. We're looking at these truths, and they're very hard for us to comprehend. In fact, some of them are impossible for us to fully understand, but we can get a glimpse of a little bit of what Jesus is saying. I've been helped by uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones as he writes the following about this passage of Scripture. This book is available in our resource center as he writes on expositions of the Gospel of John. He said, as we read these words of Christ, we must realize that we are reading mysterious things and treading on holy ground. Talking about the relationship and the relation of the Son with the Father. John MacArthur writes the following statement on, these pas- on this passage of Scripture. As we read this passage, we're entering into the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctuary of the Gospel of John. Some theologians would actually see this passage as one of the passages that holds the most depth and the most mystery. Because of the complexity and the importance of these verses, we're going to take several weeks to work through the rest of chapter 5. In fact, we're going to take three weeks just to get through verse 29. And I think if you look with me at this passage, you'll see the three sections that we're going to deal with, one section each week. These sections are, are broken down, really, with the statements, truly, truly. If you look at that, you can probably see these natural divisions. Verse 19, truly, truly, I say to you. And then look at verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you. And then verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you. And so over the next three weeks, we're going to look at each one of these truly, truly statements walking through this passage so that we can, to the best of our ability, understand the the character of Jesus and understand how the Godhead works that we can know him and worship him in a greater way. Verses 19 through 23 show us the the union that Christ shares with the Father and really explains verse 18. Verse 24, that truly, truly statement, gives us the primary characteristic of genuine believers— as well as this blessed status that believers enjoy. Believers hear and and believe the word of God, and they have eternal life. And then verses 25 to 29 reveal to us the necessity of a bodily resurrection and show us that the power that raised Christ from the dead is also available to all believers. And so looking at verses 19 through 23 in our Bible study this morning, we're going to see this premise from verses 19 and 23 from this paragraph. Jesus, as the Son of God, is worthy of your honor. That really is the basis of this passage. So let's read 19 through 23 again, and I want you to look for that word honor, and maybe you can start picking out some characteristics of why Jesus is worthy of our honor. So let's look at these verses again, verses 19 through 23, so that we can see that Jesus as the Son of God is worthy of our honor. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise, or does also. 
For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And then look at verse 23. So that that... All may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Our minds often think in groups of two or three. And so often we see three parts to a passage. And that's the same in this case, as we really see John recording Jesus' message to the disciples and giving in verses 19 through 23, three reasons why Jesus is worthy of your honor. In fact, you could start each point this way, each reason this way. Jesus is worthy of your honor because, let's look at the first one together in verse 19, because he is unified with the Father's work. He is unified in the Father's work. The truth is, Jesus and the Father are unified in all things. We call this the doctrine of inseparable operations, that there's nothing that the Father does, that the Son does not do also, and that the Spirit does not do also. I had the opportunity to teach a Bible class in, um, for Pastor Ben this week as he was up in Grand Rapids, and I drew the teenager's attention in our school to the truth that even in the incarnation, in the virgin birth, we see the angel telling Mary that the power of God will overshadow you and the Holy Spirit will bring forth in your womb the Son of God. And so we have the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, working together in all things. And Jesus here is making a point that everything that the Father does, the Son does also. Remember, he just said back in verse 17, my Father continues to work every single day of the week. He doesn't rest from all his works on the Sabbath as he holds the universe together and works in his providence. And as my Father is working, so I am working also. And so he makes the point of this doctrine of inseparable operations, that he is unified in all the Father's work. This means that the Father and the Son never operate independently of each other. My dad and I try to give each other a call maybe once a week or so, or once every other week, and it usually starts with, hey, What's going on? How's the last week? Uh, how did the last week go? What's going on in your life? Here's what's going on in my life. Well, God the Father and God the Son never have that disparity between what the Father is doing and what the Son is doing. All of their work is inseparably linked. This means for us that the Son does not work outside the plan of the Father, nor does the Father operate outside the plan of the Son. Look at verse 19. The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. This is a statement of complete unity, of total oneness. One of the reasons why many theologians believe that Jesus is making this point right out of the gate 
is that perhaps the Jewish people could misunderstand his statement in calling himself equal with God. Perhaps some of them could have thought that they have Yahweh, the God of the Bible, and Jesus is calling himself another God that's equal with Yahweh, that that there's somehow two gods that they should be worshiping. And so Jesus, right out of the gate, begins with the truth that the God of the Bible is his Father, Jesus is God the Son, and they are inseparable in their works. They have complete unity, total oneness. As we look at this concept of the Son and the Father always working together, I think we can draw two conclusions that will be beneficial in helping us understand the character of God. I think these two conclusions also will keep us from doctrinal error and will actually address some contemporary attacks on Scripture. The first conclusion that we can come to is that because of the total unity in the works of the Father and the Son and the Spirit in the Trinity, that the Son, God the Son, Jesus, was not compelled by the Father to die on the cross. It's not as if the son had no choice and the father told him, this is the plan, get over it. Or this is what you'll do whether you like it or not. God the son was not compelled against his will by the father to become obedient even to the death of the cross, as Paul would tell us in Philippians chapter 2. Sometimes we may read that verse and and, and feel like there's an obedient aspect of the Son that's going against what the Son wanted. But we have to understand that the plan of redemption was not made up of a father who manipulated or coerced the Son to die on the cross. Nor, was it, nor is the plan of redemption made up of a father who's commanding and, and motivating out of maybe guilt or, or, or any such means to to motivate the Son to go obey in this way. The Son and the Father together, fueled by a love for fallen humanity, willingly paid the price by the Son giving of himself. Some who would attack the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of Christ would even go as far as to say that when the Father compelled the son to play or when the father placed the sin of the world on the shoulders of the son and compelled him to die for the sins of the world that this was some sort of twisted divine child abuse that actually is a term that's being thrown around today with those who would reject um, the, the the truth and the doctrine that we've been handed down from scripture and this clearly spelled out in scripture called the substitutionary atonement And this passage, brothers and sisters in Christ, takes that false teaching and refutes it because nothing could be further from the truth than to see God as some divine child abuser. In fact, the scripture is replete with the truth that the son willingly on his own accord because of the love for fallen humanity gave of himself on the cross for our sins. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, 
despising or, or seeing the shame that was brought with it of little value and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That Jesus willingly offered himself everything that came with the cross, the shame, the, the, the pain he looked at as of little value because of the joy that followed. The son was not compelled by the father to accomplish the plan of redemption by dying on the cross. Secondly, we also have to recognize the fallacy that, that some would believe, even in, even in, in, in good Christian circles, in, in circles that claim to believe the veracity, the truth of Scripture, that somehow Jesus is a merciful balance to the wrath of the Father. This would be the mistake that many people fall into of, looking at the Old Testament and seeing that as a, a story of a wrath-filled father and then turning to the New Testament and seeing that as a grace and loving-filled son and somehow viewing Jesus as a balance to the father, Jesus full of mercy and grace and the father full of wrath and anger. Once again, this is a very prevalent view it's important for us to cling to the words of John 5:19 that the Father and the Son are fully unified in all of their work, in all of their mission. They say they share the same wrath towards sin and they share the same grace and mercy towards God's people. I found a beautiful illustration of this in my reading through the Bible this past year I uh, read the Bible chronologically, and this year I'm just starting in Genesis and working my way straight through Revelation. And in my reading, I found a beautiful picture of the mercy and grace of God the Father. I was reading in Genesis chapter 15 and, and the covenant that God was making with Abraham, and he tells Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 that, that his descendants four generations later would return and would occupy this land because there was a group of people in the land in Genesis chapter 15 who hated God, who who worked everything against God, whose lives were wicked and evil in every way. They were unbelievers. They were rejecters of God. Listen to what God tells Abraham about these wicked Amorite people. He says to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 15, And for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, telling him that he's going to die. You shall be buried in a good old age, verse 16. And you shall come back here in the fourth generation, your people. Listen to the next phrase in Genesis 15, 16. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Even though these people had rejected God. And there was not one person in the entire Amorite nation who feared God. Even though all of their works were constantly evil continually, God was going to give them four more generations of mercy and grace. Four more generations to give them an opportunity to turn to believe to turn to find grace, as Rahab did in Jericho, looking at the people of God and saying, I choose your God over my God. As Ruth did to tell Naomi, your God will be my God. 
And so God gives four generations of mercy and grace. Then he tells Abraham, your your children will come back, but I have four generations of mercy left before I remove this wicked people off the face of the earth. You see, friend, the Father and the Son are unified in their mercy. They are unified in their grace. They are unified in their wrath and in their anger towards sin. So the first reason that Jesus is worthy of your honor is that he's unified with the Father in his work. And and we can go even further in verse 20 to say that he's unified in the Father with his love. His love. Look at this beautiful verse in verse 20. For the Father loves the Son. Friend, that is a beautiful phrase that gives us a glimpse into the very character of the Father. That God, in his nature, is love. That in eternity past, what did God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit enjoy? They enjoyed a relationship with each other of love. The Father and the Son and the Spirit did not create this world because somehow God was lonely. But the three persons of the Godhead existing in perfect unity, in perfect union, in perfect love together. Rather, God created this world and created mankind so that he could demonstrate his love to fallen people in a unique way. And so the first phrase of verse 20 shows us this unity of love that the Father and the Son have. The Father's love being poured into the Son. Sometimes when you read a novel, there are constant um, kind of uh, illusions, if you will, or shadows of what's to come later on in the novel. And here in the Gospel, John gives us a little teaser. For in John chapter 17, when we look at the, the beautiful picture of, of who God is. And as we, as we work through the gospel and we see the high priestly prayer of John, we will see that the Father, the love that the Father has is the same love that he gives to us. The love that he pours into the Son is the same love that he pours into his children. I want you to see, look in verse 20. What is the direct act of love in this passage? Well, the direct act of love in this passage is God revealing himself, revealing his nature. Look at verse 20. The father loves the son and shows him all that he is doing. Look back at verse 19. The son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. What is the act of love that John is focusing on in this passage that Jesus is revealing to his disciples? That act of love is the act of revealing his nature to the Son. And also, as we see in the rest of the pages of Scripture, revealing himself to his people. Because God, as an act of love, reveals his character. It's just as true today as it was in Christ's time, 
that now we have the revelation of God, the divine revelation of God, that as a God of love is revealing himself to mankind, we can see that revelation and through that revelation know God's love. God has really revealed himself in two ways. He's revealed himself in what we would call general revelation and special revelation. The general revelation is creation. The heavens reveal the glory of God. We can even look outside today and we can see the creation around us and we can marvel at God's love. The Sermon on the Mount shows us that God cares for every single creature on this earth. That God even knows when a sparrow falls. And we look out today in these negative temperatures and tonight it's going to get even colder and Monday night even colder. And you look around to the birds and the squirrels and, and the deer and, and everything that lives outside. And you say, how in the world can they survive in something like this? It's because God is revealing his character. His character of protection. His character of provision. And, and every spring when you see those Animals come back out of wherever they survive from. We're reminded that if God takes care of them, surely he'll take care of me. He's revealed that to me in scripture. Not all see creation that way, though. Romans chapter 1 says that God's wrath is revealed against ungodliness because even though what can be known about God is plain to them in verse 19 of Romans 1, because God has shown it to them, they reject and suppress the truth. But because of this general revelation, they are held without excuse. God has revealed himself through his word, especially though, to his people. In an act of love, God's given you the Bible. He's given you the opportunity to look into scripture and to say, this is your love. This is who you are. This is your character. One of the greatest ways that you can reveal your love and show your love to someone who you're in a relationship with is to, to open up who you are, to tell them about your dreams and aspirations, to reveal to them aspects of your, your thoughts, and this is who I am, and this is what I'm struggling with, and some of us are, are, are better at doing that than others, and I would be definitely in the group that has a little bit of a harder time sharing um, every corner of my heart with those that I love. Some of, some of you, as my wife is, is uh, you're well-trained and, and so great at just opening up and, and showing that love so easily. And that's a reflection of what we see God doing, that God is revealing his heart. He's revealing his nature. He's revealing his truth to us, his children, through the word of God. God, as an act of love, reveals his word, and the Son is unified in that. You know, verse 20 ends in a very unique way. It says, that there are going to be greater works, greater revelation, greater actions from God than these, and God will show him that. And, and look at the end of verse 20, so that you may marvel. And so I had a question when I studied through this passage, and it's this. What are those greater works that would cause us to marvel? What are those greater works that would cause us to be astonished at God's character? Well, it's given to us 
in verses 21 through 23, and that is salvation, redemption. That we need to honor the Son because he is unified with the Father in his work, he is unified with the Father in his love that he turns and shares with us, and he's unified with the Father in salvation, in redemption, in the gospel. Let's look at verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. When you first read that, it may appear as though um, that's talking about physical life. But this aspect of resurrection is actually talking about a resurrection of spiritual life. We see the physical resurrection coming down in verse 25 through 29. But here in verses 21 and 22 and 23, Jesus is referencing the resurrection of spiritual life. As we see pictured in Ephesians chapter 2, you were once dead in your trespasses and sins, but God has quickened you. God has made you alive. You once were dead, now you are alive. That spiritual resurrection. And here referencing that spiritual resurrection, Jesus says that the Father raises the dead and gives them life, and the Son gives that same life to whom he will. That shows us that God is the source of all life. I'm speaking to you, bringing this Bible teaching into your home through technology. And if you ask me to explain to you how it works, I don't know how it all works. I just know that most of the time it works. Science has made incredible advances as man created in the image of God if he's going to rightfully accomplish the creation mandate, subdues the earth, that's what science and the working out of engineering is all about, for the moral good of humanity. I believe that technology has brought us some very good things as we've subdued the earth in that way. It's also brought some very harmful things. But but no matter how many advances science makes, science will never be able to create life. Maybe you have seen uh, a laboratory where someone has created a robot and, and, and they're trying to get it to walk like a human, or perhaps even with this advancement of artificial intelligence, that you would think that Science and technology has created a self-existent being with artificial intelligence. And that would not be the case because no matter how advanced artificial intelligence gets, it's always going to be artificial because the source of life is God himself. We see in Genesis chapter 1 as God forms man out of the dirt, the dust, the mud of the ground. And he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life that in that moment from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation chapter 22, we see God as the source of life. If someone is spiritually dead and is going to be spiritually resurrected, That same source is found in God. Because God is not only the source of all physical life, he's also the source of all spiritual life. No matter how hard you work, and no matter how hard you want, no matter how hard you desire, you can't generate spiritual life. The Father is the only one, in verse 21, who raises the dead to life. 
And I'd like to make just two notes on verse 21. If you want to look at that verse with me, if you're taking notes, perhaps these would be two that you'd want to write down as well. But as I was studying through this, these are two that really stuck out to me. First of all, it shows us our need. Because before we're saved, we are in need of a spiritual resurrection. We're all born spiritually dead. And we're in need of spiritual life being given to us. We see this with Jesus and Nicodemus. Unless you're born again, unless you're given life, regenerate it. Can't even see the kingdom of God. So we're all, we all need this. There's some point, as we'll see next week in a believer's life, where you must pass from death to life. Secondly, at the end of verse 21, we see that Jesus is the determiner of who gets this life. This life is not given through a sacrament of baptism. This life is not given through church membership as somehow a pastor or or even a congregation welcoming you into church membership would somehow give you spiritual life. This life is not given to you by some priest This life is only granted to you through Jesus Christ. Look at the end of the verse. The Son gives life to whom or whomever he wills. This also means that Jesus can't be manipulated or bribed into giving spiritual life to people. To whom will Jesus give life? Listen to the next uh, a passage coming up in the next chapter in John 6. Jesus says, beginning in verse 37, All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So we have a lot of parallels in this passage in John 6, 37 to 40, as we do in our passage today. And this is the will of him who sent me. This is the will of God. Verse 39 of John 6. You can just turn over in your Bible and look there if you want. That I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. So now we're talking about this concept of resurrection again. Listen to John 6, 40. For this is the will of my Father, and the assumption there, it's also the will of the Son, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. He is showing their spiritual resurrection and physical resurrection, and he tells you the means by which he grants spiritual life and that is only by faith but there's there's a perhaps a nuance of this view that we need to recognize brother or sister in Christ that your faith does not coerce Jesus into giving you this life your faith does not manipulate or bribe Jesus into giving you this life There are some who would perhaps lack the assurance of their salvation because they would, uh, in the throes of emotionalism, be doubting whether or not they said all the words right. Or be doubting whether or not their faith was enough. Or whether I did the process just right as if there's some divine treasurer in heaven whose name is God who will dole out eternal life for those people who by their right 
actions or right feelings manipulate that treasure chest into spitting out a ticket of eternal life. Friend, your faith does not manipulate or coerce Jesus into giving you eternal life. Your faith is the means by which God grants that life and even as you will see, as we'll see next week, Jesus freely gives this eternal life to all those who come in faith. And that faith is actually an evidence of the eternal life that's present. That even your faith is an evidence of spiritual life that God gives. It's not as though your faith forces Jesus to give you life, but rather that that placing of the faith in Jesus Christ at the moment of salvation is one of the evidences of eternal life. And we don't pretend to understand how all of these things work together and it doesn't help us to think about it in, in a section of, of time stamps as, as we would think of the progress of time, but rather as an event of salvation that your faith is an evidence of the eternal life that God gives we think about that concept, there is only one proper response. And it is the main idea of this whole passage. It's the conclusion given to us in verse 23. Look down at verse 23. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. That word honor is tied in, in our in our. Um, relationship with God, that word honor is closely tied with the concept of worship. That one of the ways that we show our worship is that we honor him. What is honoring God? It is making his name and making his character and his person the most important thing in your life. Honoring the Son is honoring the Father. And we come especially to this final point of seeing the glory of salvation. There is no other proper response than to honor the Son. And as we close in our Bible study, I'd like to not leave this concept in just the intellectual of, okay, now I know why I need to honor the Son, or I know why the Son is worthy of my worship. But I'd like to finish by asking the question, how do we do this? If you're like me, when the truth of Scripture is present, your heart burns with that truth. Your heart resonates with that truth. One of the reasons why I knew that, or one of the reasons why I had an aspiration and had a desire to be in a preaching ministry is because whenever I would hear the truth, my heart would burn and I'd have the passion to then share that and teach that to others.
The Holy Spirit resonates with that truth as our heart burns with that truth. And sometimes we, we listen to truth and perhaps we're reading our Bible or we're listening to biblical music and, 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 and we want to respond to that in honoring the Son. And so what I'd like to do is, is to get, just give you a, a couple ways of how you can honor the Son. I sat down and wrote out about 10. I'd like to give you just three as we close. I'd like to first recognize, before we get to the three, that the world does not honor the Son. John chapter 4 and verse 44, the prophet has no honor in his hometown. And going back to Romans chapter 1, even in seeing the unsaved who look around at creation, it ends by saying this, Romans 1.21, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. The world doesn't honor honor the son but God's people should honor the son according to our passage in John chapter 5 so so how do we do that how do we do that first of all we do that by knowing him through the revelation that he's given to us every time that you open up the scripture and you seek to know God in a more deep way, you are honoring God. You are honoring the Son. Well, how do we know that? Well, at the beginning of this passage in John chapter 5, it says that God's love is the revelation of himself. And so you honor God by taking that revelation and, and absorbing it, by reading it and praying through it, by understanding it. Had a conversation with a brother in Christ who goes to our church this week about how we were reading through the Bible. And I challenged him. I said, you know, when I'm reading through the Bible this year, I'm, I'm trying to every single time make it a point to say, Lord, will you show me your character? And then will you change me to be like that? And, and I believe that's why God revealed his character like he did in Genesis chapter 15 in my Bible reading this year. Revealing his character of mercy and grace. He answered that prayer in my life. And friend, he'll answer that prayer in your life as well. Show me your character. And then take a step back when God shows you that character through scripture. God, show me what you're like. So God, will you make me like that? Will you make me merciful? Will you make me gracious? You honor the son. You honor God by knowing him through the scriptures. Secondly, you honor God by recognizing his sovereignty and then being thankful for his sovereignty. There are things in your life which you can't control. That's the mistake that the unsaved make in Romans chapter 1. They look around and they make excuses for what they see. God didn't create this. It come by, came by some other means. God didn't do that. Someone else did that. But you, as a child of God, you can stand in contrast to the unsaved who did not honor him as God and were not thankful by honoring God's plan in your life and being thankful. Friend, what are you struggling to believe is true about God's working in your life right now? What area in your life is so hard that you've been struggling to think that God has nothing to do with it? One way that you honor God is that you see his plan 
you see his, his providence, that him, that's God working out all things for your good, for the good of his people and for his glory. You see all of that and you say, God, you are working. Thank you. Even when it's hard, thank you. Because I recognize that you're the creator. You are the sustainer. And so standing in contrast to the world in Romans 1 who did not honor him as God, we honor and are thankful for your sovereignty. Lastly, we honor him with our lives of obedience. With our lives of obedience. Listen to this passage in Mark chapter 7. A very sad phrase that Jesus tells to the Jewish people as they're fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me. That passage is given in the context of people not living in accordance with God's revealed word and even making up for themselves their own way they wanted to live. And the contrast to that would be that you live in accordance with God's commands. God's commands in Scripture are sometimes hard to obey. Through fervent prayer and and faith in God, we can obey everything that God's asked us to do. And so we honor God by having our lives reflect his character. Just three ways that you can honor the Son, that you can honor God today. I'd like to give you a little bit of homework. Today around the lunch table is, if you're like my family, you'll be gathering in a few brief hours around the lunch table. I'd like for you to ask the question to your family, how can we honor the Son. I've given you three to start you out. Knowing him through the revelation he's given to us, recognizing and being thankful for his sovereignty and providence, his control and his plan, and living a life of obedience to the scripture. Would you take time around the lunch table today and would you ask that question, how, what are some ways that we can honor the Son? May God give us grace as we seek to honor him in all that we say and do. Heavenly Father, we are blessed to be able to look into your word this morning. I pray that you would use the scripture, that this Bible study, to affect hearts, that we would see your character. Oh, God, I miss gathering with our church family today, but even that we take as an act of providence on your behalf. We pray that you would give us wisdom as we seek to honor you with our lives, with our words, with our emotions. I pray that we would stand as a testimony of people who live as a reflection of your grace and your truth. I pray that you would keep our dear church family safe as Uh, There is probably some needed travel that needs to happen over the next couple days. I pray that you'd keep unsafe vehicles far from them and you would keep drivers attentive. Even hearing this morning of friends who were involved in accidents and yet you preserved health and life even in the midst of those accidents because of the weather. I pray that you would 
just grant safety for our church family during this time and that you would bring us together safely to gather again a week from today as we pray in the wonderful, glorious name that's worthy of our honor, Jesus Christ. Amen.